Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. We're glad that you're with us as we uh, come to uh, worship our God, as we come to sing and to pray and to praise Him and to come to His Word. Um, if this is your first or, or second or, or just, you know, you're, you're still relatively new, I, I want you to know that you are welcome here. We're glad that you, you are here because whether this is your first Sunday or your 51st or 101st, we are all in need of the grace of God. Every one of us are in need of God's forgiveness to be poured out upon us through Christ. And that's why we come. That's why we sing praise. That's why we come and gather around his table and why we open his word. And the portion of his word that we're going to be looking at this morning comes out of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, you can also find the passage printed in your order of service. Matthew 6, we're going to look at verse 12. This is the uh, second to last sermon in our series on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, next Sunday, Tobias, who's one of our elders and interns, will be uh, opening the, the final portion of this series to us. Uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But before we come to verse 13, we need to uh, take up verse 12. So if you would please read with me. Jesus said to his disciples, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, we do ask as we come to this portion of your word that you would lead us in the way that we are to go, that you would soften our hearts and to open our eyes, that you would unplug our ears so that we would marvel at the grace of your goodness, that we would be stirred to new affections to follow you and to reflect your goodness to others. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Ernest Hemingway, in his short story, The Capital of the World, he begins the story by telling a story that was prominent in Madrid, he says. In Madrid, there was this story that had made prominence that there was a man who came looking in the cities of Madrid for his son, Paco. We don't know why he is looking for him. We don't know why his son has left. Maybe he has been kicked out of the house. Maybe he has run away. But this father comes looking for his son. He's exploring the streets. He's looking to find him. He doesn't know if he's homeless. He doesn't know if he's got a job and he's successful. He doesn't know if he's on the brink of personal destruction. But what he knows is that he is in Madrid and he is looking. Well, after a little while of exploring the streets, he realizes that this is no way to find his son. He will never find him by just going up and down the streets of Madrid. The city is too big, and so he puts an ad in the newspaper. It simply says, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. Well, the day arose. Tuesday came. The time for him to go and meet his son, it, it had arisen. And so he goes to the Hotel Montana in the hopes that Paco has seen this ad, in the hopes that Paco would be there and hear, all is forgiven. 
when he arrives at the hotel, what he finds is the police dispersing the 800 men named Paco who were responding to the ad. And this story is fictitious. The story did not really happen, but, but, it, but the truth is, is that Hemingway is getting at something that is universal to us all, isn't he? 800 men would come and show up to hear all is forgiven. We're all longing to be forgiven. We're all in need of forgiveness. I mean, think about the relationships that we have. The strain that is put upon some of them. Maybe it's between a, a child and a parent. Maybe it's between two spouses. Maybe it's between two friends. That strain, those words that we have said that we cannot unsay. Those actions that we have done or have been done to us that, that stick with us, actions of, of rebellion, of, of abuse, of, of disregard, those strains that we felt. We know that need to hear all is forgiven. I know two men who many years ago at Christmas, they got into an argument. I can't tell you what the argument was about because I don't remember anymore. And I don't I don't know if they could even tell you the content of the argument any longer, but, but decades later, they still will not speak to one another. They come to a wedding and they check to see if the other one will be there before their presence is made known. They come to a family funeral and they make sure that they're standing on different sides of the room decades later and forgiveness will not penetrate their hearts. Now, I imagine that most of us aren't experiencing that sort of extreme tension in our relationships, and yet we all know the need to hear all is forgiven. To hear it for ourselves and to say it to others. Because it's not just we that have wronged others, but we too have wronged. We have been on both sides of this. We cannot... It is not hard for us to imagine hearing all is forgiven, that expectation, and to go running to the place where those words would be said over us so that relationship could be restored. Yes, Hemingway is touching on something that is universal to us all. You and me. Every one of us is in need for forgiveness. And that's what this prayer is taking up. That's what Jesus is directing us to. That's where his focus is. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And where Jesus begins is with our need for forgiveness. Forgive our debts. The very fact that we can ask for forgiveness or need to ask for forgiveness indicates that we have wronged our God. If, if we had not, we would not need to ask for forgiveness. So we ask, forgive our debts. Now, when we hear debt... We probably think about financial debt, right? Mortgage, student loans, car payments. We think of those sorts of things. But this is, this is much more significant than simply financial transactions. This is a moral debt. That's what the word is. A moral debt incurred as the result of sin. It's an offense, a sin, a transgression. It is the guilt that we have accumulated for ourselves. And maybe some of you grew up learning the Lord's Prayer saying, forgive our trespasses. Now, that word trespasses, it it can get at the same sense of of sin and debt. In fact, Jesus uses that word trespasses a little bit later. But the word here means debt, and 
And I like, I like debt a little bit better anyway. <laughs> um, well, I guess, well, forget. Um, because debt actually gets at the, the significance of what we've done. You see, trespass, when we trespass, you can inadvertently trespass on someone's property. You maybe just stumble upon it. You didn't know that you were doing it, and, and when you realize it, you just step off of it, and the trespass is over. But not with debt. You see, you don't just accidentally get into debt. You accumulate it for yourself. You're conscious of it. You're aware of it. And just because of your awareness doesn't mean that you can be done with it, right? You can't just step away and say, the debt is no more, right? Go to the bank. Try that. <laughs> I don't want to pay my debt, my mortgage. I think it's done. <laughs> they'll probably do what you just did to me. They'll laugh at you, right? Because we know that debt remains even after the initial action. Now, what we are doing is accumulating for ourselves something that we cannot be rid of in of ourselves. We're accumulating a debt of sin. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, the, the same passage or the, the comparative passage, it says, forgive us our sins, because that's what this debt is getting at. The sins, our transgressions, the, the hold that we have dug ourselves into that we are unable to get out. You know, with a mortgage or a car payment, you just give yourself time and effort and resources and you can get out of it. But not this debt. Not this debt. You know, in Matthew 18, uh, Peter comes to Jesus and he asks a question about forgiveness. He says, Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother? Some of you know this story. How many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times? Do you remember what Jesus did? He didn't answer him directly because Jesus is the master teacher, so he tells him a story. He tells him a parable. He says, there was once a man. How many times do you have to forgive your brother? Well, there was once a man who had accumulated for himself 10,000 talents worth of debt. Now, a talent was about 20 years' wages. So you do a little bit of math, and this man owes 200,000 years worth of debt. That's like saying he owed a zillion million dollars, kids. Like, like the, the number's unfathomable, right? Like you have to wonder, what, how did a first century uh, Jewish person accumulate that much debt? But regardless, Jesus said this man has this unpayable debt. And the master, the king, says it's time for you to settle your debts. And so the... The servant comes before him, and what does he say? He, he puts himself before the master and says, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. All right, now I can't help but think that the master just laughed at him. Right? Like, you're going to pay me 200,000 years worth of wages? Like, there's no way that's going to happen. It ain't ever getting paid. Have patience with you. I'll be dead. My great, great, great grandchildren will be dead before you can ever pay this back. It's ridiculous. If it was an hour or a week or a month's wage, maybe, but 200,000 years, it's unpayable. And the same is true for us. You see, the debt that we have accumulated for our sin, we cannot pay back. doesn't matter how much effort, how many years, how much resources you accumulate for yourself, you can never pay that debt back. The debt of sin, we cannot pay you see, in this parable, we are not the master. We might want to think of ourselves as that. You know, we're very, very pious, very, very gracious kind of people, but, but we're actually the, the servant who has accumulated this unpayable debt. 
And there's nothing we can do to pay this debt of sin. The Bible tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of our sin, the debt that we have have accumulated for ourselves, the wages of our sin is death. It doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't pay it back. Arcade Fire, one of my favorite bands, says, they ask the question, do you think your righteousness can pay the interest on your debt? And then they answer the question, I have my doubts about it. Well, I have to tell you all, I don't have any doubts. I have absolute certainty there is not a single one of us who can pay that debt back. We can't do it. That's why we have to ask for forgiveness. That's why we have to come to God and say, forgive us our debts. We can't earn our way out of it. We must ask. And God grants that request. You remember the story of the man with this debt? He says to the king, Just give me enough time, I'll pay you back. Now, the king is no fool, this master. He knows he'll never get paid back. But we're told that out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. 200,000 years worth of wages, and he said it is no more. He forgave him of the debt. What amazing grace! What incredible mercy! What loving pity. He forgives this debt. But the amazing thing is that that in order for him to forgive this debt, the king must take the debt upon himself. Right? He's already given this money. And so, so for him to forgive it means that he's not going to receive back what is rightfully his. So he incurs the debt on himself in order to forgive this man. And that's exactly what Christ does for us. That is exactly what Christ does for us. When we say, forgive us our debts, we are asking God to take that debt upon himself, and that is exactly what Jesus did. In Colossians chapter 2, we're told that you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your sin It has been nailed to the cross. That sin that everybody knows and that sin that you are so guilt-stricken that you would never speak with your own lips. Those sins that you hide in the depths of your heart and the darkest recesses of your mind that if you are trusting in Christ, if you say, Father, forgive me, he says, all is forgiven. They've been nailed to the cross. Your sins... God says to you and to me, he says, son and daughter, all is forgiven if you are resting in Christ. Is that not amazing? Your sins and mine, even my sins are forgiven. That's what he says to us. If we're trusting in Christ, Jesus has taken our sin upon himself and he says all is forgiven. Y'all, this changes everything. It changes everything. I mean, we are now free to celebrate and to praise our God, to worship him, the burden of our sin, the weight that we have felt. It is no more. It has been put aside. It has been nailed to the cross. And we bear it no more. It changes everything. And so we can celebrate. I mean, I don't actually know anyone who paid off their mortgage. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I remember when we paid off my student loan and the, the feeling of relief and the feeling of joy that we are no longer under this debt, how much more when our sins have been forgiven. Have some of y'all seen those, those videos online about the missionaries in these villages in Africa and South America? They come and they tell the story of the gospel to these villages. I was watching one this past week. It's amazing because this missionary comes and he's telling this whole village. There's probably about 75 people gathered around him. And he's telling them about, about the debt that they have incurred, the sin that they have built up for themselves. But then he gets to the gospel. And he tells them about how Christ has taken that debt and it has been nailed to the cross. And, and you can watch these individuals, they start to jump up off, off the ground. They start to rise to their feet and they're, they're like coming right up to his face and they're peppering him with questions and disbelief. And they're turning and they're asking and they're talking to one another. And before long, they're all believing and they're all on their feet, and they're jumping up and down, and they're screeching and yelling, and they're celebrating and praising God because their debts are no more. It is amazing because they understand what it means that they are now free from their, the debt of their sin. They celebrate and they worship and are filled with joy. Y'all, as those who know the depths of our sin and what it costs to be free from that sin, we should be the most joyful, the most celebratory people in the world. Because Jesus did what no one else could do, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. It is remarkable. It changes everything. It changes the way that we approach God, we approach him with gratitude and thankfulness. It, it changes the way that we interact with one another. You see, because we have been forgiven, it means that we are now to be a people who are forgiving. You see, that's the other part of this verse. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we, have, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors that we are to be a forgiving people. Now, that little word, as, could trip you up a little bit. Because it sounds like maybe Jesus is saying, well, if you have the ability to forgive, then that ability is predicated, or, or God's forgiveness is predicated on your ability to forgive. It sounds that way, doesn't it, a little bit? Like, like, if you're unable to forgive, then, then God's not going to forgive you. And so, so then our forgiveness, our ability to forgive, becomes a work, doesn't it? We can merit the way in which God is going to interact with us, the grace that he's going to show to us. But we know that that can't be true because the Bible is very clear that we are not saved by works, but by grace. And this is the free gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, right? Ephesians 2 tells us. So what is Jesus saying here? What he's saying is that those who have been forgiven are going to forgive. That as those who have been forgiven, that as an overflow of that grace and forgiveness that has been shown to us, we are going to forgive others and we are going to be gracious with others. That, that, that as those who have experienced God's grace, we can't help but show it to others. As Philip Ryken said in our order of service at the very beginning in our reflections, I, I Put it there for you. The ability to forgive is one of the surest signs of having been forgiven. 
That's what Jesus is saying. See, the truth is, is that if we're unwilling to forgive, then maybe we actually haven't been forgiven. Then maybe we're not really trusting in Christ for that grace. Because the perspective of the Bible is that that there will be forgiveness that wells up in our hearts and it overflows to others. The parable goes on, many of you know this, that man, he's been freed of his 200,000 years worth of debt. And so he goes out. And I could imagine as he left, he, you know, his steps were a little bit lighter. <laughs> right? The burden has been cast off of him. And, and so he's walking through the streets and he sees his fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. A denarii was one day's wage. So he owes him 100 days' wages. This man had just had 200,000 years of debt forgiven, but this guy owes him 100 days. So what does he say? Well, you would think, overwhelmed with the grace that he has been showed, he would go, don't worry about it, brother. Don't think anything of it. But he says, you need to pay me. And the man says, have patience with me. And I will pay it back to you. Almost the exact same words that the other man had said to the king, to the master. And what does his fellow servant say? He takes him and he throws him in jail. And he leaves him there until he's able to pay him back. Basically ensuring he will never pay the debt back. How wicked and evil that man was. But do you remember what the king did? The king hears of it. The king hears of it and he calls the servant in that he had been so gracious to, that he had filled with forgiveness and poured grace and mercy upon. And he says, you are wicked. And he takes him and he casts him into jail. And Jesus said, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. See, what Jesus is getting at is that those who have been forgiven, those who know the cost in which their forgiveness was granted, that the way that we demonstrate the fact that we have been receivers of God's grace is that we will be gracious, that we will forgive others. If we are sinful people, which we are, we need to forgive. It was one of the Wesley brothers who said to General Oglethorpe, General Oglethorpe, the founder of the colony of Georgia, he once said, I do not forgive. And Wesley said to him, then, sir, I hope you never sin. Because Wesley understood that if you are unwilling to forgive, then you will never receive forgiveness. That if you have received forgiveness, then you are going to want to forgive that you are going to want to be gracious. The ability to forgive is birthed out of knowing that our sin, our debt has been paid. And so what does forgiveness look like? Well, that word, forgive, it means to let go, to release. When we say, I forgive you, what we are saying is we, we release this person from whatever debt they have incurred on us, that, that they have taken upon themselves at our expense. Now, this, this begs all sorts of questions. And there are many ways in which uh, well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians have tried to apply forgiveness. But in many ways, they've misappropriated it. 
See, there's misconceptions about forgiveness. For, forgiveness means that there's no consequences then. If you say, I forgive you, then you're freeing them from any consequence that's related to their sin. But, but that's actually not what we see in Scripture. For instance, we look at David and Moses, and we see their sin playing out and the consequences of their sin, right? Think about Moses, this great man of God. He tested God, right? He struck the rock and he tested God. Now, now, I, I have no doubt Moses has been forgiven. <laughs> I have no doubt Moses is in heaven, right? I mean, he showed up at the Mount of Transfiguration and he ministered to Jesus. Like, he, he's probably in God's good graces, I have no doubt he is in heaven. And yet, even though all his sins Jesus took upon himself in the cross, Moses wasn't allowed to enter the land. Do you remember that? Because you struck the rock, I'm not going to let you get into the land. It doesn't mean his soul was in danger. It doesn't mean that he has been damned. But his sin has consequences. Or think about King David. The horrible sin, the heinous sin that he perpetrated with Bathsheba and then killing Uriah the Hittite. Right now, again, I have no doubt David is in heaven. Jesus is sitting on the throne of David. <laughs> and yet, his sin had ramifications. Even though he was forgiven, the son that was born to Bathsheba was lost. And so we have to acknowledge the fact that that though we say, I forgive you, it does not mean that there are not consequences to those sins. There are not ramifications that still play out. There are some sins so heinous, so hurtful, so painful, that, that they have a consequence and, and ramifications that extend even beyond us saying, I forgive you. When we say, I forgive, we are saying, I release you from the judgment that I would impose upon you. I, I release you from any wrath or vengeance that I would bring upon you, but I place you in the hands of another. It says, I will not bring vengeance upon you, but, but I will place you in the hands of God. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See, when we forgive, we're saying we will not take that vengeance upon ourselves. We will not be the inflictors of it, but we will hand it over to God or maybe to the civil authorities. And so, so forgiveness does not negate consequences for sin, right? So, so we see these examples of, of great acts of forgiveness in our culture when, when terrible crimes are perpetrated. Now, if, if we just had a casual understanding of forgiveness, we would simply say, well, well then that person should be off scot-free. They said we forgive them. But that's not what that means. Abuse and murder theft and, and, and all sorts of other sins, we, we, we can say, I forgive you, but we are handing them over to an authority that can bring about justice. And so the fact that someone would actually have to go to jail or to be punished or experience the ramifications of their sin does not mean that we have not forgiven them. Sin has consequences. And forgiveness does not negate those consequences. The other thing is that sometimes we think of as forgiveness as meaning that, 
that you can only say I forgive if that means that you feel no more pain. You're basically never going to hurt from this again. But that's not true either. Sin has lasting scars on us. Right? We, we still incur the wounds and the scars of the sins that have been perpetrated against us. And simply saying, I forgive you, though, though it is sincere, does not mean that the pain that we feel from the ramifications of that sin goes away forever. Now, one day they will. When we are in heaven and we are with the king, they will be gone forever. But, but until that day, we may still feel the ramifications, the consequences in our own being. Let me give you an example of this. Many of you remember a number of years ago the Charleston shooting, right? That, that young man who, ter- who perpetrated that horrible and her- horrendous crime. And, and what was amazing about it, the story that was always told and that captured the imagination of so many was the fact that there were those who's, who were family members of the victims who came and stood before the shooter and said, I forgive you. Do you remember that? It was incredible. It was incredibly powerful. They, they said things like, like, you took my daughter. You took my, my spouse, and I will never see them again, but I forgive you. Now, I do not question the sincerity of those words that day. But you know, years later, it has been years, years later, they were interviewing some of those people who stood before that shooter and said, I forgive you. And many of them said how hard it is to continue to forgive. You see, because the wounds of that day, they still feel. The scars still get scratched. And so you see, friends, forgiveness isn't simply an act. It is that. But it's also a process. You see, we have to continually, daily pursue forgiveness. Now, I bring this up because, because so many well-intentioned <coughs> Christians who are trying to be sincere and helpful can sometimes say very unkind and unhelpful things like, like you've forgiven them, so just get over it. Move on. But the truth is, is that there are some sins, there are some things that have been done to us and to others that are so deep and so hurtful, and so painful, that though we say, I forgive, we have to say, tomorrow, I forgive. And we have to say, in a week, I forgive. And we have to say, in a year, I forgive. We have to keep pursuing forgiveness over and over and over again. There's some people's grief and sadness that they cannot just be brushed aside so quickly. And when we try to do so, we're not recognizing the significant cost that is incurred in order to forgive. See, forgiveness is something we have to pursue. Maybe there there is hardness in your heart, even this morning, towards a brother or sister. Maybe there are words that have been said to you that you cannot shake from your mind. Maybe there is lingering anger and, path and, and pain and hurt. And maybe there is 
lingering emotion of wanting to bring wrath and vengeance upon this person. But, but friends, if, if we are in Christ, we must pursue forgiveness. I don't say that glibly. It is something we must pursue. It's something that we must seek to embody. But even in saying that, let us acknowledge the fact that it is not easy. It comes with a great cost. It came to a great cost to Christ. In order to forgive, he would give of himself. He would take our sin upon himself to forgive. If we are going to forgive, it will come at a great cost. You know, Corey Tim Boom was a woman who, uh, during World War II, she was a, a child, and her family took in Jewish, uh, Jewish people and hid them in their home. And, and Corey Tim Boom and her family, it was discovered what they were doing, and so they took her and her sister and they put, put them in a concentration camp. They put them in uh, Ravensbrück, and Corrie Tim Boom survived World War II. She was released from the concentration camp, and, and her story has been told in, in the book, The Hiding Place. If you haven't read it, it is, it is well worth your time. Do, do not walk, run, <laughs> and go read that book. It is wonderful. But afterwards, she started telling this story, not just in print, but she started giving talks. And at, after one talk that she had given that she called On Forgiveness, Many people were coming to talk to her afterwards, and there was a man that started to approach her. And as she looked upon this man, she started to have flashbacks of her time in the camp. And she started to picture him a little bit younger and a little bit more fit, a little bit more hair on his head. She started picturing him in a uniform that he had worn and the hat that he had worn those days. And she knew that he was a guard. This guard came up to her, and he extended her, his hand to her and begins talking. She, she didn't reach out to him. He starts talking and says, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Will you forgive me? The man extended his hand again. And Corey Tim Boom says that in that moment, all that she could think about was her sister Betsy, who had died in that concentration camp. And there's this man, this guard, who had killed countless people, and he's standing there saying, will you forgive me? She says it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. And as she stood there, she, the words of Jesus from Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15 came to her mind. She remembered that those who have been forgiven must forgive. And she said that she had known that same forgiveness of God, not as a commandment, but as a daily experience. And so she stood there, that hand still held out to her, and she said that she was still clutching the coldness of her heart. And she silently prayed, Jesus, help me. She said, I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you must supply the feeling. And so very woodenly, 
very forcefully, she raised her hand and she grasped that man and looked him in the face and said, I forgive you. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. And she said, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner. She said, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I forgive you, brother. She was able to say to that man, that man who had done horrible and wicked and unspeakable things, she was able to look into that man's face and say, all is forgiven. And the only reason she could say that is because she had heard those words herself. She had heard the words of her father say, all is forgiven. Your sins, they have been nailed to the cross. All is forgiven. Your sins, they are no more. All is forgiven. She could hear, she could say those words because she had heard them herself. And people of God, those same words have been spoken to you. All is forgiven. Amen. Our Father, it is with great thankfulness that we worship and praise you. It is with great thankfulness that we can be filled with hearts of gratitude at what you have declared and done for us. That you have given your Son to bear our sin. We know it no more. They are nailed to the cross. We have died with Christ, but we have risen with him so that our sins They have been forgiven. The debt has been paid. And so for that, we thank you and we praise you. And we ask that you would allow forgiveness to well up in our hearts. That you would allow us to respond to the grace that you have given to us by being gracious to others. Father, for those of us who are still bearing the pain and the anger and the desire for vengeance, I pray that you would, forgive, you would relieve us of that. So that even through difficult and hard times, we would be able and willing to say, all is forgiven. Because you have said that to us. We are in need of your grace. We are in need of your mercy, not just today, but all of our days. And so we thank you that you give it through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray and God's people said.